Part 2, Chapter 3 of Farewell Love, a novel by Matilde Serrao. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jen Broda. 3. About the middle of June, in the first summer of his marriage, Cesare Diaz brought his wife and his sister-in-law to the Villa Catarina at Sorrento. He would leave them there while he went to take the baths at Vici. Afterwards, he was to go to St. Moritz in the Angadina, whither betake themselves such persons as desire to be cold in summer, the same who, desiring to be hot in winter, hibernate at Nice. Anna had secretly wished to accompany her husband upon this journey, longing to be alone with him, far from their usual surroundings, but she was to be left behind. Ever since that night, when she had sat up till dawn waiting for him, tormented, disillusioned, her faith destroyed, her moral strength exhausted, there had been a coldness between the couple. Cesare had lost no time in asserting his independence of her and had vouchsafed but the vaguest explanations, saying in general terms that a man might pass a night out of his house, chatting with friends or playing cards, for any one of a multitude of reasons. Anna had listened without answering. She dreaded above all things having a quarrel with her husband. She closed her eyes and listened. He flung his explanation at her with an air of contempt. She was silent, but not satisfied. She could never forget the hours of that night, when, for the first time, she had drained her cup of bitterness to its dregs and looked into the bottom depths of human wickedness. The sweetness of her love had then been poisoned. As for Cesare, he had been exceedingly annoyed by her waiting for him, which seemed to him an altogether extravagant manifestation of her fondness. It annoyed him to have been surprised in the early morning light looking old and ugly. It annoyed him to have to explain his absence, and it annoyed him finally to think that similar scenes might occur again. Oh, how he loathed these tragic women and their tragedies. After having hated them his whole life long, them and their tears and their vaporings, behold, he had been trapped into marrying one of them, for his sins and his rancor at the inconceivable folly he had committed vented itself upon Anna. She, sad in the essence of her soul, humble, disheartened, understood her husband's feelings, and by means of her devotion and tenderness sought to procure his pardon for her offense, the offense of having waited for him that night. One day, when Anna had been even more penitent and more affectionate than usual, he had indeed made some show of forgiving her with the pretentious indulgence of a superior being— she had taken his forgiveness as a slave takes a kind word after a beating, smiling with tears in her eyes, happy that he had not punished her more heavily for her fault. But the truth is, he was a man and not an angel. He had forgiven her, yet he still wished to punish her. On no consideration would he take her with him to Vici and St. Moritz. 
he gave her to understand that their wedding journey was finished and that it would never do to leave her sister Laura alone for two months with no other chaperone than Stella Martini, that it wasn't his wish to play Joseph Prudholm and travel in the bosom of his family. In short, he gave her to understand in a thousand ways that he wished to go alone and she resigned herself to staying behind in preference to forcing her company upon him. She flattered herself, poor thing, that this act of submission, so hard for her to make, would restore her to her lord's good graces. He went away, indeed, in great good temper. He seemed rejuvenated. The idea of the absolute liberty he was about to enjoy filled him with enthusiasm. He recommended his ladies, as he jokingly called the sisters, not to be too nun-like, but to go out, to receive, to amuse themselves as they wished. Anna heard this advice, pale with downcast eyes. Laura listened to it with an odd smile on her lips, looking straight into her brother-in-law's face. She, too, was pale and mute. After his departure... A great sad silence seemed to invade the villa. Each of the sisters was pensive and reserved. They spoke but little together. They even appeared to avoid each other. For the rest, the charming youthful serenity of the blonde Minerva had vanished. Her white brow was clouded with thought. They were in the same house, but for some time they rarely met. Anna wrote to Cesare twice a day. She told him everything that happened. She opened to him her every fancy, her every dream. She wrote with the effusiveness of a passionate woman who, too timid to express herself by spoken words, finds her outlet in letters. Writing, she could tell him how she loved him, that she was his in body and soul. Cesare wrote to her once or twice a week, and not at length but in each of his notes there would be, if not a word of love, at least some kindly phrase, and upon that Anna would live for three or four days until his next letter arrived. He was enjoying himself. He was feeling better. He would return soon. Sometimes he even expressed a wish for her presence, that she might share his pleasure in a landscape or laugh with him at some original fellow traveler. He always sent his remembrances to Laura, and Anna would read them out to her. Thank you, was all that Laura responded. Laura herself wrote a good deal in these days. What was she writing, and to whom? She sat at her little desk, shut up in her room, and covered big sheets of paper with her clear, firm handwriting. If anyone entered, she covered what she had written with her blotting paper and remained silent with lowered eyes, toying with her pen. More than once Anna had come in. Thereupon Laura had gathered up her manuscripts and locked them into a drawer, controlling with an effort the trouble in her face. What are you writing? Anna asked one day, overcoming her timidity and moved by a strange impulse of curiosity. Nothing that would interest you, the other answered. How can you say so, the elder sister protested with indulgent tenderness. Whatever pleases you or moves you must interest me. 
Nothing pleases me and nothing moves me, Laura said, looking down. Not even what you are writing? Not even what I am writing. How reserved you are, how close you keep your secrets. But why should you have any? Anna insisted affectionately. Yes, said Laura vaguely. She got up and left the room, carrying her key with her. Anna never again referred to what her sister was writing. It might be letters, it might be a journal. In July, Sorrento filled up with tourists and holiday folk, and the other villas were occupied by their owners. The sisters were invited about a good deal and lured into the thousand summer gaieties of the town. One of the earliest arrivals was Luigi Caracciolo. He came to Sorrento every season, but usually not till the middle of August, and then to spend no more than a fortnight. He had rather a disdain for Sorrento, he who traveled over the whole of Europe. This year he came in the first week of July, and he was determined to stay until Ana Diaz left. He was genuinely in love with her, in his own way, of course. The mystery that hung over her past and her love for Cesare Diaz, which Luigi knew to be unrequited, made her all the dearer to him. He was in love, as men are in love who have loved many times before. Sometimes he lost his head a little in her presence, but never more than a little. He retained his mastery of himself sufficiently to pursue his own well-proved methods of lovemaking. He covered his real passion with a semblance of levity which served admirably to compel Anna to tolerate it. She never allowed him, especially at Sorrento, where she was alone and where she was very sad, to speak of love but she could not forbid him to call occasionally at the Villa Caterina, nor could she help meeting him here and there in the town. And Cesare, from St. Moritz, kept writing to her and Laura to amuse themselves, to go out, saying that he hated women who lived like recluses. And sometimes he would add a joking message for Caracciolo, calling him Anna's faithful cavalier. But she, through delicacy, had not delivered them. Luigi did not pay too open a court to her, did not affect too great an intimacy, but he was never far from her. For a whole evening he would hover near her at a party, waiting for the moment when he might seat himself beside her. He would leave when she left, on the pretext of taking a little walk in the moonlight, would accompany the two ladies to the door of their house. He was persevering with a gentle, continuance, untiring perseverance that nothing could overcome, neither honest silence, nor her coldness, nor her melancholy. She often spoke to him of Cesare, and with so much feeling in her voice that he turned pale, wounded in his pride, disappointed in his desire, yet not despairing, for it is always a hopeful sign when a woman loves, even though she loves another. Then the only difficulty, though an immense one, is to change the face of the man she loves to your own by a sort of sentimental sleight of hand. For various reasons, he was extremely cautious. 
He was not one of those who enjoy advertising their desires and their discomfitures on the walls of the town. Then he did not wish to alarm Anna and cause her to close her door to him. And besides, he was afraid of the silent watchfulness of Laura. The beautiful Minerva and the handsome young man had never understood each other. They were given to exchanging somewhat sharp words at their encounters, a remarkable proceeding on the part of Laura, who usually talked little, and then only in brief and colorless sentences. Her contempt for him was undisguised. It appeared in her manner of looking him over when he wore a new suit of clothes, in her manner of beginning and ending her remarks to him with the phrase, A handsome fellow like you. That was rather bold for a girl, but Laura was over twenty, and both the sisters passed for being nice, but rather original. Nice, but original, as their mother and father had been before them. Luigi Caracciolo himself thought them odd, but the oddity of Anna was adorable. That of Laura made him uneasy and distrustful. He was afraid that on one day or another she might denounce him to Cesare and betray his love for the other's wife. She had such a sarcastic smile sometimes on her lips, and her laughter had such a scornful ring. He imagined the most fantastic things in respect of her and feared her mightily. How strange your sister is, he said once to Anna, finding her alone. She's good, though, said Anna thoughtfully. Does she seem so to you? Yes. You know little. You're very ingenuous. She's probably a monster of perfidy, he said softly. Why do you say that to me, Caracciolo? Don't you know that I dislike such jokes? If I offend you, I'll hold my tongue. I keep my opinion, though. Some day you'll agree with me. Be quiet, Caracciolo. You distress me. It's much better to have no illusions. Then we can't lose them, dear lady. It is better to lose illusions than never to have had them. What a deep heart yours is. How I should like to drown in it. Let me drown myself in your heart, Anna. Don't call me by my name, she said as if she had heard only his last word. I will obey, he answered meekly. You too are good, she murmured absently. I'm as bad as can be, Signora. He rejoined, piqued. She shook her head good-naturedly, with the smile of one who would not believe in human wickedness, who would keep her faith intact in spite of past delusions. And the more Luigi Caracciolo posed as a depraved character, the more she showed her belief that at the bottom of every human soul is good. Everybody is good according to you, he said. Then I suppose your husband, Cesare, is good, too? Too? He is the best of all. He is absolutely good, she cried, her voice softening as it always did when she spoke of Cesare. He who leaves you here alone after a few months of marriage? But I am not alone, she retorted simply. You're not alone. You're in bad company, he said nervously. Do you think so? I wasn't aware of it. You couldn't tell me more politely that I'm a non-entity. 
But he, he who is away and who no doubt invents a thousand pretense to explain his absence to you, can you really say that he is good? Cesare invents no pretenses for me, she replied, turning pale. Who says so? He? Do you believe him? He says nothing. I have faith in him, she answered, overwhelmed to hear her own daily fears thus uttered for her. Caracciola looked at her anxiously. Merely to hear her pronounce her husband's name proved that she adored him. Luigi was too expert a student of women to interpret rightly her pallor, her emotion, her distress. He did not know, but he could easily guess what Anna wrote to Cesare every day, and that he responded rarely and briefly. He understood how heavy her long hours of solitude must be amid the blue and green of the Sorrento landscape, passed in constant longing for her husband's presence. He understood perfectly that she was consumed by secret jealousy, and that he tortured her cruelly when by a word or an insinuation he inspired her with new suspicions. He could read her heart like an open book, but he loved her all the better for the intense passion that breathed from its pages. He did not despair. Sooner or later, he was convinced he would succeed in overcoming the obstacle in his way. He adopted the ancient method of assailing the character of the absent man. When he would mention some old flame of Cesare's, or some affair that still continued, and which his marriage could not break off, or when he would speak of Cesare's desertion of his young wife, he saw Anna's face change. He knew the anguish that he woke in her heart, and he suffered wretchedly to realize that it was for the love of another man. His weapon was a double-edged sword that wounded her and wounded him. But what of that? He continued to wield it, believing that thus, little by little, he could deface the image of Cesare Diaz that Anna consecrated with her adoration. Anna was always ready to talk of her husband, and that gave him his opportunity for putting in his innuendos. At the same time, it caused him much bitterness of spirit, and sometimes he would say, We are three. How do you do, Cesare? Bowing to an imaginary presence. Anna's eyes filled with tears at such moments. Forgive me, forgive me, he cried. But when you introduce his name into our conversation, you cause me such agony that I feel I am winning my place in heaven. Go on, I am already tied to the rack. Force your knife into my heart, gentle tortress. And she, at first timidly, but then with the impetuousness of an open and generous nature, would continue to talk of Cesare. Where was he? What was he doing? When would he return? She would ask. And he, by and by, would interrupt her speculations to suggest that Cesare was probably now on the Rigi, with the Comtesse de Biage one of his old French loves, whom he met every year in Switzerland, and that he would very likely not return to Sorrento at all, nor even to Naples before the end of October. I don't believe it. I don't believe it, she protested. You don't believe it? But it's his usual habit. Why should he alter it this year? 
he has me to think of now. Ah, dear Anna, dear Anna, he thinks of you so little. Don't call me by my name, she said, making a gesture to forbid him. If Cesare heard me, he wouldn't like it, eh? I think so. You hope so, dear lady, which is a very different thing. But he's not jealous. No, he's not jealous, she repeated softly, lost in sorrowful meditations. But what man is? He's a man who has never thought of anything but his own pleasure. Sad, sad, she murmured very low. Yet though she thoroughly well understood that a better knowledge of her husband's past life could only bring her greater pain, she began to question Luigi Caracciolo about Cesare's adventures. Ah, how ashamed she was to do so. It seemed like violating a confidence, like desecrating an idol that she had erected on the altar of her heart. It seemed like breaking the most sacred condition of love, which is secrecy, to speak thus of her love to a man who loved her. Yet the temptation was too strong for her, and cautiously, by hints, she endeavored to draw from Caracciolo some fact, some episode, a detail, a name, a date. She would try to ask indifferently, feigning a slight interest, attempting without success to play the woman of wit, she, poor thing, who was only a woman of heart. Caracciolo understood at once, and for form's sake assumed a certain reluctance. Then, as if won by her wishes, he would speak. He would give her a fact, an episode, a date, a name, commenting upon it in such wise as, without directly speaking ill of Cesare, to underline his hardness of heart and his incapacity for real passion. It was sad wisdom that Anna hereby gained. Her husband's soul was cold and arid. He had always been the same. Nothing had ever changed him. Sometimes, sick and tired, she would pray Caracciolo by a gesture to stop his talk. She would remain thoughtful and silent, feeling that she had poured a corrosive acid into her own wounds. Sometimes Laura would be present at these conversations, beautiful, in white garments, with soft, lovely eyes. She listened to Caracciolo with close attention, whilst an inscrutable smile played on her virginal lips. He, in deference to the young girl's presence, would, from time to time, drop the subject. Then Laura would look at him with an expression of ardent curiosity that surprised him, a look that seemed to ask a hundred questions. His narrative of the life of Cesare Diaz succeeded in spoiling Anna's holiday, but did not advance his courtship by an inch. He has great patience and unlimited faith in his method. He knew that a strong passion or a strong desire can overcome in the most insurmountable obstacles. Yet he had moments of terrible discouragement. How she loved him, Cesare Diaz, this beautiful woman. It was a love all the more sad to contemplate because of the discrepancies of age and the character between husband and wife. 
Here was a fresh young girl, uncomplainingly supporting the neglect of a worn-out man of forty. One day, unexpectedly, Cesare returned. From his wife's pallor, from her trembling, he understood how much he had been loved during his absence. He was very kind to her, very gallant, very tender. He embraced her and kissed her many times, effusively, and told her that she was far lovelier than the ladies of France and Switzerland. He was in the best of good humors, and she, laughing with tears in her eyes and holding his hand as she stood beside him, realized anew how single and absolute was her love for him. Two or three times, Cesare asked, And Laura? She's very well. She'll be coming soon. You haven't found her a husband? She doesn't want one. That's what all girls say. Laura is obstinate. She really doesn't want one. People even think she would like to become a nun. Nonsense. The strange thing is that once when I asked her if it was true, she answered no. She's an odd girl, said Cesare a little pensively. I don't understand her. Ah, for that matter, you understand very little in general, said her husband, caressing her hair to temper his impertinence. Oh, you're right, very little, she answered with a happy smile. I'm an imbecile. But Laura did not come, though she had been called. Anna sent her maid. She would come at once. She was dressing, was the reply. They waited for her a few minutes longer, and when she appeared in the doorway, dazzling and white, with her golden hair in a rich coil on the top of her head, Anna cried, Laura, Cesare has come. Cesare rose and advanced to meet his sister-in-law. She gave him her hand, and he kissed it, but he saw that she was offering her face, and then he embraced her, kissing her cheek, which was like the petal of a camellia. This was all over in an instant, but it seemed a long instant to Anna, and she had an instinctive feeling of repulsion when Laura, blushing a little, came up and kissed her. It was an instinctive caress on the part of Laura, and an instinctive movement of repulsion on that of Anna. Not that she had the faintest evil thought or suspicion. It was a vague distress, a subtle pain, nothing else. From that day, life in the quiet Villa Caterina became sensibly gayer. There were visits and receptions, dances and yachting parties. It was an extremely lively season at Sorrento, there were a good many foreigners in the town, amongst them two or three wild American girls who swam, rode, played croquet and lawn tennis, were very charming, and had handsome dowries. It became the fashion for the men to make love to these young persons, a thing that was sufficiently unusual in a society where flirtation with unmarried women is supposed to be forbidden. Cesare told Anna that it was a propitious moment for launching Laura. She, too, had a handsome dowry and was very lovely, though she lacked perhaps the vivacity of the wild Americans, and with the energy of a youth, he took his wife and sister everywhere. 
Luigi Caracciolo continued to make his court to Anna. With delicate cynicism, Cesare, on his return, had inquired whether Luigi had faithfully discharged his duty as her cavalier. But Anna had turned such talk aside, for it hurt her. Laura, however, declared that Luigi accomplished miracles of devotion and shown himself a model of constancy. And the lady, what of her? asked Cesare, pulling his handsome black mustaches. Heartless, Laura answered, smiling at Anna, for whom this joking was a martyrdom. Noble but heartless lady, repeated Cesare. Would you have wished me to be otherwise? demanded Anna quickly, looking into her husband's eyes. No, I should not have wished it, was his prompt rejoinder. In spite of this downright pronouncement, in which her husband, for all his cynicism, asserted his invincible right to her fidelity, in spite of the fact that Cesare appeared to watch the comings and goings of Caracciolo, he openly jested with his wife's follower about his courtship. Well, how is it getting on, Luigi? he asked one day. Badly, Cesare. It couldn't be worse, responded Luigi with a melancholy accent that was only half a faint. And yet I left the field free to you. Yes, you are as generous as the emperor's your namesakes. But when you have captured a providence, you know how to keep it whether you are far or near. Men of my age always do, Luigi. Ah, you have a different tradition. What tradition? You don't love. What? Do you mean to say that you young fellows love? Asked Cesare, lifting his eyebrows. Sometimes, you know, we commit that folly. It is a mistaken method, a grave blunder. I hope that you've not fallen into it. I don't know, said Luigi, looking mysterious. Besides, your question strikes me as prompted by jealousy. I'll say no more. It might end in bloodshed. I don't think so, laughed Cesare. But you'll drive me to despair, Diaz. Don't you see that your confidence tortures me? For heaven's sake, do me the favor of being jealous. Anything to oblige you, my dear fellow. Except that. I've never been jealous of a woman in my life. And why not? Because one day or another I'll tell you. And putting his arm through Luigi's, he led him into the drawing room of the Hotel Vittoria. Such talks were frequent between them. On Cesare's side, calm and ironical. On Luigi's, sometimes a little bitter. On their family outings, Cesare always gave his arm to Laura, for he held it ridiculous for a husband to pair off with his wife, and Caracciolo would devote himself to Anna. Cesare would make him a sign of intelligence, laughing at his assiduity. Rigidly obeying orders, eh? asked the sarcastic husband. Anyhow, it's she who's given me my orders answered the other sadly. But really, Anna, you're putting to death the handsomest lad in Christendom, exclaimed Cesare. The world is richer for those who die of love, she returned. 
sentimental aphorism, said Cesare with a cutting, ironical smile. And he went away to dance with Laura. Between Anna and Luigi, there was a long silence. It was impossible for her to listen to these pleasantries without suffering. The idea that her husband could speak thus lightly of another man's love for her, the idea that he could treat as a worldly frivolity the daily siege that Caracciolo was laying to her heart, martyrized her. She was nothing to him, since he could allow another man to court her. He never showed a sign of jealousy, and jealousy pleases women even when they know it is not sincere. She was angry with Cesare as much as with Luigi. You jest too much about your feelings for any woman to take them seriously, she said to the latter one evening when they were listening to a concert of mandolins and guitars. You're right, he answered, turning pale. But once, when I never jested, I had equally bad luck. You refused to marry me. He spoke sadly that she had refused to marry him, still further embittered for him her present indifference. How could a woman have refused a rich and handsome youth for a man who had passed forty and was effete in mind and body? How had Cesare Diaz so completely taken possession of this woman's heart? The passion of Anna for Cesare and that of Caracciolo for Anna were much talked of in Sorrento society, and the general opinion was that Diaz must be a tremendous wizard, that he possessed to a supreme degree the art of attracting men and winning women, and that everybody was right to love and worship him. As for Caracciolo, his was the story of a failure. Caracciolo himself, moved by I know not what instinct of loyalty, of vanity, or of subtle calculation, accepted and even exaggerated his role of an unsuccessful lover. Wherever he went, at the theater, at parties, he showed plainly that he was waiting for Anna and was nervous and restless until she came. His face changed when she entered, bowed to him, gave him her hand, and when she left, he followed immediately. Perhaps he was glad that all this should be noticed. He knew he could never move her by appearing cold and skeptical. That was Cesare's pose. And in it, Luigi could not hope to rival him. Perhaps her sympathies would be stirred if she saw him ardent and sorrowful. In the autumn, he perceived that Anna was troubled by some new grief. Her joy at the return of Cesare had given place to a strange agitation— She was pale and silent, with dark circles under her eyes, and he realized that whatever faint liking she had had for himself had been blotted out by a sorrow whose causes were unknown to him. One day he said to her, "'Something is troubling you?' "'Yes,' she answered frankly. "'Will you tell me what it is?' "'No, I do not wish to,' she said with the same frankness." Am I unworthy of your confidence? I can't tell it to you. I can't. It's too horrible, she murmured, with so heartbroken an inflection that he was silent, fearing lest others should witness her emotion. 
He returned to the subject later on, but without result. Anna appeared horror-struck by her own thoughts and feelings. Luigi had numberless suspicions. Had Anna secretly come to love him? Or had she fallen in love with someone else? Someone unknown to him? But he soon saw that neither of these suppositions were tenable. He saw that she had not for a moment ceased to love Cesare Diaz, and that her grief, whatever it was, sprang as usual from her love for him. For the first week after his return, her husband had been kind and tender to her. Then, little by little, he had resumed his old indifference. He constantly neglected her. He went out perpetually with Laura on the pretext that she was too old now to be accompanied only by her governess, and that it was his duty to find a husband for her. Sometimes Anna went with them to enjoy her husband's presence. Often he and Laura would joke together about this question of her marriage. How many suitors have you? asked Cesare, laughing. Four who have declared themselves, three or four others who are a little uncertain. Anna felt herself excluded from their intimacy and sought in vain to enter it. It made her exceedingly unhappy. She was jealous of her sister, and she hated herself for her jealousy. I am vile and perfidious, since I suspect others of vileness and perfidy, she told herself, too. Was it possible that Cesare could be guilty of such a dreadful sin, that he could be making love to Laura? What's the matter with you? What are you thinking about? He asked his wife. Nothing, nothing. What's the matter? He insisted. Don't ask me, don't ask me, she exclaimed, putting her hand over his mouth. But one evening, when they were alone, he again questioned her. She answered, It's because I love you so, Cesare. I love you so. I know it he said with a light smile. But it isn't only that, dear Anna. And he playfully ruffled up her black hair. You're right. It isn't only that. I'm jealous of you, Cesare. And of what, woman? He asked, suddenly becoming cold and imperious. Of all women. If you so much as touch a woman's hand, I am in despair. Of women in general? Of women in general. Of no one in particular. She hesitated for a moment. Of no one in particular. It's fancy, superstition, he said, pulling his mustache. It's love, love, she cried. And if you should love another, I would kill myself. I don't think you'll die a violent death, he said, laughing. Remember, darling, I would kill myself. You'll live to be eighty and die in your bed, he said, still laughing. For a few days, she was reassured. But on the first occasion, when her husband and Laura again went out together, her jealousy returned, and she suffered atrociously. Her conduct became odd and extravagant. Sometimes she treated Laura with the greatest kindness. Sometimes she was rude to her and would leave her brusquely to go and shut herself up in her own room. 
Laura asked no questions. When are we going to leave Sorrento? Anna asked, but her husband did not answer, appearing to wish to prolong their sojourn there. Let us go away. I beg you, Cesare. So soon? Naples is empty at this season. There's nothing to do there. We'd have the air of provincials. That doesn't matter. Let us go away, Cesare. You are bored here in the loveliest spot in the world. Sorrento is lovely, but I want to go away. As you wish, he said suddenly consenting. Give orders to the servants to make ready. And to avenge himself, he neglected her utterly during the last two or three days, going off constantly with Laura. On the eve of their departure, Luigi Caracciolo called to make his adieu. He found Anna alone. Good evening, Signora Diaz, he said, and the commonplace words had an inflection of melancholy. Good evening. You've not gone to the farewell dance at the Vittoria? I have no farewells to give, except to you. Farewell, then, she said, seating herself near him. Farewell, he murmured, smiling and looking into her eyes. But we shall meet again within a fortnight. I don't know whether I shall be receiving so soon. I don't know whether I shall receive at all. You're going to shut your doors to me? he asked, turning pale. Not to you only, to everybody. I'm not made for society. I'm out of place in it, out of tune with it. Solitude suits me better. You will die of loneliness. Seeing a few devoted friends will do you good. My troubles are too deep. Don't you think you're a little selfish? If you shut your doors, others will suffer and you don't care. You are willing to deprive us of the great pleasure of seeing you. But don't you know that the pain we give reacts upon ourselves? Don't be selfish. It's true. I'm perhaps selfish, but who of us is perfect? The most innocent, the purest people in the world can make others unhappy without wishing to. He studied her, feeling that he was near to the secret of her sorrow. Sorrento has bored you? he asked. Not exactly bored me. I have been unhappy here. More unhappy than at Naples? More than at Naples. And why? I don't know. I carry my unhappiness with me. Did you imagine that Sorrento would make over the man you love? I hoped. Nothing can make that man over. He's not bad, perhaps, but he's what he is. It's true. Why, then, do you seek the impossible? He went on. And you... Aren't you seeking the impossible? She retorted. Yes, but I stop at wishing for it. You see how reasonable I am? You are sad, very sad, Anna, and not for my sake, for another's. Yet I should be so happy if I could help you or comfort you in any way. Thank you. Thank you. She replied, moved. I believe that dark days are waiting for you at Naples. I don't wish to prophesy evil, Anna, but that is my belief. I'm sure of it, 
she said, and his sudden desperation showed itself in her face. Well, will you treat me as a friend and remember me in your moments of pain? Yes, I will remember you. Will you call me to you? I will call upon you as upon a brother. Listen, Anna. Officially, I live with my mother in our old family palace, but my real home is the Ray Villa in the Chiatomone. I promise you, Anna, that I am speaking to you now as I would speak to my dearest sister. Remember this, that beginning a fortnight hence, I will wait there every day till four o'clock in the afternoon to hear from you. I shall be quite alone in the house, Anna. You can come without fear if you need me. Or you can send for me. My dearest hope will be that in some way to serve you. I will obey you like a slave. Anna, Anna, when your hour of trouble arrives, remember that I am waiting for you. When you have need of a friend's help, remember that I am waiting. But why do you give me your life like this? Because it is good to give it thus. You, if you loved, would you not do the same? I would do the same. I would give my life. You see? But forget the word love. It escaped me involuntarily. It is not the man who loves you. It is the devoted friend. It is the brother whom you are to remember. My every day will be at your disposal. I swear that no unhallowed thought shall move me. I believe you, she said. She gave him her hand. He kissed it. End of Part 2, Chapter 3